0: Please join me in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And let me point this out because it pertains to the message. We will be concluding our worship service today with a time at the Lord's table. And let me simply point out to you that what John will be discussing here, just as in the passage of scripture that we read to open the worship service, uh, James, chapter 2, what is James talking about? He's talking about the public meeting of the church. And in the New Testament church, the format was they basically did a repetition, a reenactment of the Last Supper. Each and every time they gathered together as a Christian community, at someone's home, they would carry out a reenactment of the Lord's Supper. The format of the early church meeting was a replication of that, where, which was what? The Passover meal. So they would have an actual meal, but in the 1st century, 2nd century, 3rd century church, they would actually begin the meal. Each person would get the food. They would sit in chairs, depending on what culture you were in, they would sit in chairs, recline on divans. but then they would begin the worship service, their time together, with the bread, with the breaking of the bread, the breaking of the matzah cracker. Then they would have their one and a half, two hour, however long it was the Holy Spirit led them, of worship and building one another up in the faith, and then they would conclude with the cup. And that was the basic format of 1st century, 2nd century, 3rd century Christian worship as they met together in homes. And the passage that we read from James, chapter 2, he's talking about that public meeting where you've got men of different places in society coming in. Don't you dare look at these men through the world's glasses, through the world's goggles, from the world's standpoint, based on the clothes that they're wearing or the amount of attention they were able to give to their cleanliness. If a wealthy man comes in to your assembly, nothing wrong with being wealthy. James isn't being critical of that, but if you are regarding a person according to their material possessions, you are wrong. Their value is in that they are made in the image of God. That is their value. And you ought to revere that. You ought to serve them on that basis. And if a person comes in who is dressed in filthy garments, they are likewise. The reality about them is that they are made in the image of God. That is their value. That man crucified, those two men crucified beside the Lord Jesus. On either side of the malefactors, thieves, who declared, at least one of them declared, yes, I deserve what I'm getting. And yet Jesus welcomed him because he asked. Jesus welcomed him into the kingdom. You will be with me this day in paradise. And John is addressing in his letter much the same issue in the meetings, in the public meetings, the weekly public meetings of the church, how are you to treat one another? What is it that you are to be focused on is ministry to one another, washing one another's feet, which was literally, in both the Jewish and Gentile cultures, literally what was done at the doorway. You wash one another's feet. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. I will be reading through chapter 3, verse 3 to begin. And now, little children, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming if you know that he is righteous you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him behold what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of god therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him behold now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he, Jesus, is pure. Christ is coming. He's going to rescue us He's going to pull us out of this world, which is on the verge of judgment, extreme judgment. But what are we to do? Beginning in verse, chapter 2, verse 28, abide in him. This is exactly what Jesus says in the Gospel of John, as quoted by John. In the Gospel of John, it, it divides very simply into two large, actually three portions, chapters 1 through 12. Believe in him. And John the Apostle presents the gospel over and over and over and over, and it can all be summarized in that most famous of all verses from John's gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, the heir of all things, the single most important person, God the Son, single most important person, He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him transfers their trust from their own performance to his Jesus performance. Whoever believes in him, by the way, the word translated belief can also be translated trust or faith. Whoever trusts in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. A glad welcome in God's per- presence, instead of the ever- <coughs> excuse me everlasting perishing that is called the lake of fire, where the worm does not die. Why? Because the person in that lake of fire is forever being eaten up, but never is forever being eaten on, but never eaten up, and the fire is not quenched, always burning, but never burning up. You don't want that. You want everlasting life, a welcome in the presence of God. My little children, abide in him. He has made provision for you. Again, from that John 14 passage where Jesus has said, I have given you a commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Oops that major commandment from the hebrew scriptures you shall love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength and you shall love your neighbors yourself jesus just raised the bar as i have loved you and john 13 through 17 is how do we do the christian life the gospel of john chapters 13 through 17 and then chapter 18 to the close of john's gospel is the narrative of the Arrest, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection that gives us the historic foundation for why we should take that message seriously. Now, little children, abide in him that when he appears, and he is going to appear, and when he comes, he will have come forever. We will look back on this time in our life experience, and it will be like a blink of an eye compared to the experience we have in his eternal presence. When he appears, we may abide in him, that when he appears, we have, have confidence in him and not be ashamed before him at his coming. We want to be able to hear authentically, well done, you good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. If you know that he, God, is righteous you know that everyone who, is, who practices righteousness is born of him. If you see someone authentically walking in imitation of Jesus, you know it was Jesus that did it. That's authentic righteousness. That's authentic righteousness. Those who have been born of him are practicing authentic righteousness. Righteousness. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. John chapter 3, Nicodemus, you must be born. We translate it again. It would be better to translate it, with the, which is the other meaning of the word, from above. You, you need to be born, Nicodemus, from above. By the water and the wind, that is the Holy Spirit. Water in the form of rain and wind come from above. You need to be cleansed, Nicodemus. Behold what manner the Father has bestowed on us <clears throat> that we should be called children of God. Think about it. For just a moment, make yourself an angel, an unfallen angel. <laughs> who has been dwelling in the presence of the holy, authentically holy God. Some of these angels are called seraphim. That means burning ones. They are literally angels of fire. You're dwelling in the presence of God, whose very presence is like fire. And he picks up this creature of dust and grants them a welcome in His presence, and we don't get burned up. Behold what manner the Father of love, the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. What angel was ever called that? There's no record in the Bible of that term being used for angels. And yet, here we were, the creatures of dust who rebelled against God, and He swept us up out of the hell that we deserved into His welcoming presence and calls us His children. And the angels are stunned. They are seeing something called mercy, they're seeing something called grace, they're seeing something called love placed on display for them. They didn't even know those concepts existed before the fall of man. When Lucifer and a third of the angels rebelled against God, they weren't offered mercy. They weren't offered forgiveness. They, weren't, they don't even know what exists. And here we are, not only does God just say, oh, well, here's a, here's a penny in your tin cup, little beggar. No, he sweeps us up in his arms and brings us home and adopts us. John the Apostle is incessant in both his letter and his gospel with that reality. The most simple yet, I would dare say, most deeply profound message of all is that which he is constantly reiterating. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. And the world hears that gospel message. They hear us speaking of that gospel message. They hear us explaining to them the blessing that God has granted to us and taking us up in his arms and welcoming us into his family. And they're like, They can't even get their minds wrapped around this. And in fact, often, because they want to regard what is wealth, I just shared a testimony with a young man here about Risham Raj Paudel in Nepal, Hindu Brahmin priest who abandoned his godhood as a Brahmin priest, abandoned deity, became a Christian. and spread the gospel throughout Nepal. Do you think God chose a, a, a megaphone for Nepal that got their attention? I'm going to send a man to you whom you used to literally worship, and he's going to tell you how he abandoned his de- deity in order to become a servant of Jesus Christ. Oh, Did I say servant? Yes, but also child of God. Child of God, welcomed into his presence. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. Now, we can read the words. We can read the book of Revelation, we can read the Hebrew prophets, we can read about that coming kingdom glory, but we don't have the frame of reference here to even get it. If you've never eaten chocolate and somebody tries to explain how splendid chocolate is to you, yeah, (laughs) it's taking a bite of chocolate that tells you what chocolate is like. Not words of explanation. And so the world hears our words of explanation, but it is not until they cast away their pride and cast themselves on God's mercy that they actually experience the reality of a glad welcome with the Holy God. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, shock of shocks, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. We will be able to stand in his his presence and not be burned up and it not be a threat and it actually be a welcoming, glad time. We shall be like him we will have to be like him. We will have to have been made like him by God's mercy and grace in order to endure enjoy that experience. It's coming, folks. It's coming. It's coming, and when it comes, it will have come forever. And everyone who has this hope in him Purifies himself just as he is pure. Purifies himself of what? The nonsense we tend to elevate, the stuff that we tend to worship, the stuff that we tend to give our time to instead of what is authentically, eternally valuable everyone who has this hope in him, this expectation, makes some life choices. It's called repent. That word that we translate with the English word repent is the Greek word metanoia. It means change your mind. Your noose is your mind. Change your mind. Change your outlook. Change your orientation. Repent whoever has this hope in him purifies himself, repents, changes his orientation just as he is pure to match the reality of who he is. And that's why, shock of shocks, we come to resemble him. We come to resemble him. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Now remember that a large segment of the congregation that John is writing to are Christians who have a Jewish background. And so when you say sin to especially a Jewish background Christian, they instantly, their go-to, which is fine, is the Ten Commandments. Fine. Good. Good. Now, the Ten Commandments are written on the heart of everybody, Jews and Gentiles. So we all have that basic understanding. But whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. It is important. What's he saying? Now, this is a man, as we continue in this passage, John is going to be saying things like, if you are authentically his, you don't sin. This is the same guy who in chapter 1 says, if you say you have no sin, you make God a liar, because he says you do. Wait a minute. John, you're saying this over here, and you're saying this over here. Why? Because what John is actually addressing in this passage is how we look at ourselves. Don't you dare excuse your sin. In chapter 1, it's about people who are claimed to be walking in the light, and therefore, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm sinless. And John says, uh, 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 if we say we have no sin, we make God a liar, because he says we do. If we walk in the light, as he, God, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is the same guy who in this chapter is going to say, if you are authentically righteous, you don't sin. What he's simply saying here in this chapter is, don't you dare try to excuse sin. And that is our bent. We always want to cut ourselves slack. Well, yeah, well, well, that was a mistake. Sin. Sin. Call it what God calls it. And if you can authentically say walking in righteousness, don't try to excuse sin and call it something else. We've got all kinds of of synonyms for sin that make it sound a little less crude and gross. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. It is what it is. Don't call it less than what it is. And you know that he, was he, Jesus, was manifested to take away our sins. And on the cross, he paid sins penalty for us. He removed the, the guilt. He, he removed the guilt of our sin. He removed the judgment that awaits us. He was manifested to take away our sins, and in him, and to break sin's power in our life, and in him, there is no sin. I just saw this, one of the dumbest things I've ever seen uh, stated out publicly. It was somebody on CNN. Oh, that guy, Jesus, he never claimed to be sinlessly. Oh, he never claimed. Oh, excuse me, Jesus did claim, very pointedly, to be sinlessly perfect saying to his worst enemies who had been peeking at him from behind rocks and bushes for three, three and a half years, which of you accuses me of sin? He who has seen me has seen the Father. I would dare say Jesus, on many occasions, declared his own perfection. And even John the Baptist, is the one who heralded Jesus' ministry, said behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world and declared to his apostles when i baptized him i saw the holy spirit descend upon him in the form of a dove and i heard the voice of the father from heaven this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased and when john the baptist said behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world The lamb, the Passover lamb, had to be perfect. In the examination of that Passover lamb, if there was any blemish at all, it was to be rejected. It had to be perfect. How many lambs did they go through to find the perfect lambs? And here was that same Jesus who... At the same time those lambs are being examined in the temple, he's being examined by the Jewish leaders, and they could find no fault in him. Whoever abides in him does not sin. If you're authentically dwelling in him, finding your resources in him, Whoever abides in him authentically doesn't sin. Sin will never be a product of that reality. Whoever sins has neither... In talking about a persistent lifestyle. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. And so when you see someone who has professed, publicly professed faith in Christ, but whose life is unchanged, they're still walking in that sin, you've got... Authentic reason based on this passage to say, okay, pal, back up. Let's take another another look at the gospel. Because clearly, while you may have understood the words, the authenticity, the reality of the message obviously has not found its home in you in an authentic way. It is to abide in you and you are to abide in him. Yes, sir. <laughs> little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. What's the standard? Our God is the standard. Don't compare yourselves to one another. You know, I got it a little bit better, a little bit better together than that guy over there or that woman. Over, I got a little bit. I, who cares? Jesus is the standard. He who sins is of the devil. Let's not minimize words here. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. The first work of the devil in my life that he destroys is the fact that I stand without the work of Christ. I stand before God condemned. Jesus erases that and replaces my condemnation with forgiveness and the very righteousness of Christ. That's all captured in that word, justification. I move from being a standing of condemnation before God to a standing where I stand before the just and holy God as a just and holy child of his because Jesus dealt with the issue of my standing. But then I am also expected, and he's made provision for this by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, by his consistent presence in my life, he has made provision that I can walk in the righteousness that formerly I couldn't even, except by deceiving myself, pretend to walk in. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. God the Holy Spirit dwells within us. The very person of God dwells within us. His seed remains in him. My own spirit has been brought to birth. And in addition to that, God the Holy Spirit dwells within me. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's been born of God. Now, again, this is the same fellow that in chapter 1 says, if we say that we have no sin, we make God a liar. But what's he saying? He's talking about authenticity. Don't cut yourself slack. If you are authentically walking in God, on a step-by-step-by-step-by-step, moment-to-moment-to-moment-to-moment, to moment to moment, The sin issue will be dealt with. But don't take your eyes off Jesus. Keep your focus on him. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness... Did I skip anything here? I'm in verse 10. Okay. Okay. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Now he's getting down to the acid test, loving your brother. The number one thing we are to be focused on and that John focuses on in this letter is, do I love my brother? How can I say I love Jesus when I don't love my brother? In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Love one another. Love one another, Darren. Love one another, Jason. Love one another, Javier. Have I have I said this enough? I want it em, tattooed on your I want it emblazoned in your mind and heart so that you it is there ever before you. Love one another. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was the, of the wicked one and murdered his brother, his literal brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. If you go back and read the narrative... In the book of Genesis, chapter 4, it's very interesting because they're not bringing sin offerings. They're bringing thank offerings. Abel is bringing a sheep, a lamb, from the flock. He's a shepherd. And Cain is bringing something from the field because he's a farmer. It's very interesting. It says, and God rejected Cain and his offering, and he accepted Abel and his offering. The problem wasn't the offerings. These are not sin offerings. These are thank offerings. The problem wasn't what was offered. The problem is the people, and a thank offering brought by Cain, who has a heart of murder, He's been comparing himself to Abel. He is jealous. He is angry. And so when God says, I'm accepting Abel's offering, the issue was Abel. I'm rejecting, Cain, your offering. And it wasn't because of the offering itself. It was because of the man. A thank offering bought, brought for purely legalistic reasons just because it says in the book of Leviticus we have to do this. I'll do it, but I sure am not happy to be giving 10% of my harvest. You're doing it, but I'm not doing it with joy. God rejects that offering. It is not a pleasing thing to him. But the person who comes with perhaps a much smaller offering, his fields are smaller, his flocks smaller, his vineyard smaller, but it's done with a truly grateful heart, God welcomes that. And it was Cain's anger at God that caused him to murder his brother. What you have done to one of the least of these, my children, you have done it to me. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his, Cain's works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Don't be uh, surprised. Why? Because you're walking in authentic godly righteousness before them and even though they may be a pagan orientation they've got the law written on their hearts every single human being knows more about the true and living God than they are willing to admit they know more about authentic righteousness than they're ever willing to admit until God the Holy Spirit prompts it from them by his mighty work Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. That is not standard operating procedure in any culture that hasn't had a powerful impact from the example of Christ. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides, remains in the dwelling place called death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Ouch. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Cain did not have eternal life abiding in him before he murdered Abel. He had death, eternal death abiding in him and then murdered his brother and continued for the rest of his life to have eternal death abiding in him. He never repented. He only sorrowed at the penalty that came upon him. There was no repentance on Cain's part. By this we know love because he, our Lord Jesus Christ, laid down his life for us We saw what self-sacrificing love looks like. By this we know love. What did Jesus say? I'm giving you a command, a new command. Love one another as I have loved you. John 14. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. I am telling you to sacrifice in service to your brothers and sisters. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Do it. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. When we have actually walked in, done what is left to ourselves is impossible, we've done this in the power of the Holy Spirit, and who is the most shocked of all? We will be. We will be. When you do it, you'll say, I know that wasn't me. I know that didn't rise from me. It had its origin in my Lord Jesus Christ. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. When you see yourself doing things, you know do not arise from you. There is great assurance in you that you have an authentic relationship with God. God doesn't want us to be wondering. He offers us many proofs. And this is one of the most powerful proofs we can experience in our life is when we start doing Jesus stuff instead of Mark stuff. And by this we know that we are of the truth and assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. Will your heart condemn you? Yes. Yes. But God is greater than our heart. In the same way that Lucifer is our, accuses us day and night before the throne of God, our own heart accuses us day and night before us. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. He, is, he really knows what's true and what's real. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, when we are able to answer the accusations of our hearts with authenticity, with truth, when we can speak to that issue, then we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments, because we have an authentic relationship with him and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Let's look at the prodigal son. The son who had wasted a third of his father's wealth came back hoping only to be brought back as a servant. No imagination whatsoever, no idea that he could ever be welcomed back as a son after what he had done. And his father ran towards him when he saw him coming and threw his arms around him. He didn't even get a chance to give his sales pitch. They put the ring on his finger, put the robe on him, and threw, they killed the fatted calf and started throwing the banquet, and it was his brother who refused to welcome him as his father had welcomed him, who ended up being estranged from the father. Whatever And whatever we ask from him because we keep his commandments, whatever we ask we receive from him because we keep his commandments— and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And that prodigal son got far more than he ever imagined he would get. And this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Those two things, and by the way, that, as I said, encapsulates the Gospel of John. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. As we come to the table, remember, this is a time of fellowship between ourselves and God, but also fellowship with one another. And I'm going to encourage you, as you have been hearing what the Holy Spirit has been saying to you today, if the Holy Spirit has been reminding you of a grievance you've been carrying, of a grudge you've been carrying, of a refusal to forgive that you've been carrying, or... A request for forgiveness that you should have already made I'm encouraging you God is encouraging you deal with that issue he's welcoming us to his table but in the same way that he washed our feet by going to the cross on our behalf and granting us this welcome with God he is asking that we replicate that same kind of behavior in washing the feet of those whom we have harmed by asking for forgiveness or by forgiving. By forgiving those who have harmed us. I'm going to invite.